Real Fun DC. Hospitality and a little bit of sass are always on the menu. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis. Um, it's been a wild few weeks. I am not going to lie. Um, I'll start with the fun stuff. Uh, David and I made our way back to Fenwick. Um, I'm very fortunate. I have a family member who is very generous with their house on the beach, so I get to use it. Uh, and uh, we really did have a lovely time uh, down in Fenwick. It was really quiet there, uh, which was um kind of weird, but really lovely. Um, and I don't know about any of you, if you monitor your steps daily, but I am a step monitorer. And uh, when I'm at the beach, even though I'm still working, I am getting like between 22,000 to 25,000 steps a day. And I don't know how to make that happen in my real life, but I'm going, it's an effort. I'm going to make it happen. Um, and since I'm at the beach and I'm uh, eaten, uh, those steps are really necessary. So a couple of places I just want to point out we always hit Blue Moon in Rehoboth. David and I actually like fell in love with each other at Blue Moon like 27 uh, years ago. And uh, it's just an always, we always go there. Um, the food is always great. The atmosphere is always good. There may be a drag show after dinner. So it's always a place that we go and have a great time. Catch 54 is one of those few places. Uh, it's in Fenwick, it's on the bay. And you know, most places on the Bay don't really serve really good food. This is the rarity. They serve really confident food. They have a great beer list, a great wine list, um, and a great view. Um, if you're looking for Italian when you're at the beach, like if you feel like you really need to like eat a ton of pasta or garlic bread or really lay it on, Defibios is where you wanna go so you can really fit into your bikini the next day. Um, and then our last place is the crab bag. Now. David and I are not huge crab fans. I don't love pounding away. It's too much work. I am a lazy eater. I don't love it, but my parents do. So we always go. And while they pound away, um, the crab bag has amazing fried chicken, like incredible fried chicken. Um, it also comes in a bag and it's delicious. Uh, we also get the steamed shrimp and the steamed clams, which I'm a fan of. So um, there's some uh, Fenwick uh, things to check out while you go away to the beach. It's still September, it's still gorgeous. There's definitely reasons to still go away and the restaurants are open. Um, so just a quick note about not the fun stuff. Um, if you've listened to the show, you know that every show I beg everybody to please mask up, be safe out there, vaccinate, et cetera. Uh, my husband and I are both vaccinated. We are actually both got booster shots. And last weekend we both caught COVID. I don't know how we got it. We have no idea what happened, but um, let me be really clear. It was, really, really rough. And, um, and we were vaccinated. So I know it would have been much worse, it, uh, much worse, excuse me, if we weren't, but it was worse than any flu I've ever had. And I'm also incredibly grateful and fortunate because we were able to get the antiviral treatment, um, which was absolutely life changing. Um, and if you do find yourself contracting COVID, you need to really demand the antiviral because they're not handing it out and they're not offering it. So you have to demand it. That's my piece of advice to you. My other piece of advice is, would you please get vaccinated? I don't know what you're waiting for. Um, we are ready to start back in life. Um, I am like uber immune now. So I'm dare everyone <laughs> to try to get it to me. But uh, I do beg everyone to please take care of yourself so we can take care of others. Um, it was no fun and it's, it's real. And uh, we went through it. So, okay, uh, lecture over. And as they say in showbiz, the show must go on. So let's let's get to it. Um, so festival season has been on a bit of a hiatus, but guess what? It's making its way back. Snallygaster, the beast of a beer festival. It roars back October 9th. And with me today is one of the masterminds, uh, the beer guy, everybody knows him, uh, Greg Hangert. He's a good friend. And he's also a partner and a beverage director of Neighborhood Restaurant Group, the team behind Snally Gaster. It's a really a brilliant festival and one of a kind here in the DC market. And he's brought along with him um, Adrian Widman, who is the founder of Ocelot Brewing, and Rachel Marie, who's the executive chef of Slice Joint. So we're going to slay the beast later on in the show. But first, 
what is happening in Bethesda? Uh, no longer a sleepy suburb of DC, it's a vibrant community filled with the three R's, restaurants, retail, and residences. And Stephanie Coppola is the Director of Marketing and Communications for Bethesda Urban Partnership, also known as BUP. And uh, Stephanie, Stephanie, I wanna thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, I'm really, really excited to be here and talk Bethesda. Yeah, well, you know, listen, I live close to Bethesda and yep. I'm a user of Bethesda. Um, but I think that the the entire area has changed so much in the last 15, 20 years. Can you talk yep. a little bit about the area and sort of what BUP does? Sure, absolutely. So um, as you said, we like to think that we're no longer a sleepy suburb, but an exciting and growing downtown. Um, we've got lots of development in downtown Bethesda. Um, folks may or may not know that <clears throat> Marriott is moving their headquarters to downtown Bethesda. So they were in a more suburban part of Bethesda. They wanted a downtown environment. Um, that construction has carried on during you know, this entire pandemic. They're also bringing a new hotel to downtown Bethesda adjacent to their offices. So we're super excited to have those employees come downtown um, next summer. They should be complete and moving downtown. And Lots I just of other say, development too. Having, having driven by it, it is yeah. massive. It's like massive. Absolutely massive. And I think too, you know, um, folks were not come, necessarily coming to the office every day the last year or year and a half. So, mm -hmm. it, you know, if you're not coming down to Bethesda every day and you haven't been there in a little while, um, lots of new buildings, um, you know, Fox 5 has just moved into downtown Bethesda in a new building, right? On Wisconsin Avenue, um, Tate Bakery, where Tate Bakery is located. So it is exciting to see development still happening because we're excited to have folks back, um, you know, if and when that is appropriate for that daytime population and folks who work downtown. And as you mentioned, we certainly have plenty of restaurants and retail and residents downtown. So it is an exciting place to be. Well, let's talk uh, residentially. You've also had tremendous growth. I mean, I feel yes. like every day there's a new building with there are more new residential options. Yeah, there are new apartments, there are new condos, there are things coming. Um, so that's very exciting too. Um, we just had the Maison finish, which is right across from Bethesda Elementary School. Um, mm -hmm. Lots of new things coming. So yes, it is exciting. It's a, And what's really fun is it's it's a mix of demographics and age groups. It's empty nesters who are getting rid of that you know house they might've had in Upper Montgomery County. It's young people who are new to the community. It's also young families. Um, we see tons of people walking to Bethesda Elementary School. Um, we see lots of young people out in the evening. So it's exciting to, to see that it's, it's attracting a lot of different groups. Well, let's talk about, especially when I think of people walking around, I think about the streets and yes. how <laughs> Bethesda is laid out. But you guys really had to turn it on a dime to help out retail and restaurants during the pandemic. Yes. Um, so let's talk about the launch of the streeteries and how you guys did that and activated sure. it. Yeah. So it's been going strong since last June. Um, you know, we really worked closely with Montgomery County um, last year when, you know, the pandemic was really at its height and folks weren't eating inside either because they weren't allowed or not comfortable or you know, that combination of factors. And so Woodmont Avenue is closed in downtown Bethesda, which is the Bethesda Row part of Bethesda, as well as parts of Norfolk and Cordell Avenue in the Woodmont Triangle, kind of older part of downtown Bethesda. So it's exciting to have these extra dining areas outside. They are open all the time. And the county has said it continued to, these streets can continue to be available for dining through the end of November, which is great because originally it was just going to be through Labor Day. And as can you I know, dig a little deep yeah. on that? just yeah. from a personal standpoint. So I think the streeteries are amazing. And I think it really adds to Bethesda to not Absolutely. have the traffic and the cars and to be mm -hmm. able to walk in the street. Is there is there an appeal to keep some of it, not all of it, obviously, yeah. but is there appeal to keep some of it? There absolutely is. And we're working closely to come up with a, a design plan and we're getting tons of positive feedback that people want to see parts of the streetery stay. So it, it's most likely going to be parts of Norfolk Avenue because that's mm. kind of the easiest place to close with the least amount of traffic impact. Um, people also love having Woodmont Avenue closed, but when Bethesda's back to normal, Woodmont really helps alleviate the traffic on Wisconsin and Bethesda Avenue. So I don't know how much longer the future of that will be after this year, 
Mm. And whenever I think I know what's happening, it changes. So (laughs) who knows, but (laughs) no crystal ball. Yeah. (laughs) It's likely that Woodmont Avenue may not stay. It is very likely that parts of Norfolk Avenue will get to stay. And we are looking at some design concepts. So it's not just, you know, folding tables and chairs, which is what we did to your point, turning quickly on a dime and making things available last year and continuing that through this year. So we're looking at ways to have, you know, better looking seating areas and some shading and built-in art and built-in areas for live music. So we are really looking at how to improve that for the future. Well, I, I, it is a silver lining, right? And you guys have always done music. You've always brought music to Bethesda and you're going to be doing more of that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Music is the one thing we're finding people feel very comfortable. Um, And it also helps the restaurants because it's live music in the street from six to eight on Friday nights. So you can literally get your food and beverages from such a variety of restaurants and just um, bring your own chairs or use the tables and chairs that we provide. And um, people are loving it. I mean, we did it on a lower scale last year with just kind of solos and, and, and duets, but this year we're full scale, large bands. And obviously the musicians are very appreciative and so happy to be out playing music again as well. I bet. I bet. And you guys have a calendar with that so people can see who's playing. Yes, and you when. can visit our website, um, Bethesda.org, and we will be having live music through the end of October. Well, and let's talk about, um, and I, this is something I talk about on this show a lot because I have restaurants on the show all the time, yeah. or Kathy Hollinger <laughs> with a Restaurant Association mm-hmm. Metropolitan Washington. Let's talk about, since people are coming back out and they do yes. want to go to the restaurants, it's a little good news, bad news, because staffing issues are are an issue. So how yeah. are, what's happening with restaurants in Bethesda and how are they functioning? So um, things have been going really great as far as people coming back and eating. Um, you know, they've been really pleased with what they saw in the spring and the early part of the summer. Staffing continues to be an issue. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just is what it is. Um, they haven't seen huge improvements. There's certainly enough staff to make things happen, but staffing is definitely still an issue. Um, there's some supply issues with some folks. Um, obviously there's supply issues if something breaks, um, you know, that's an issue as well. Um, but they're, I think, cautiously optimistic. I think, you know, now that numbers are kind of trending up for infections again and, and what's going on with COVID, um, you know, they're definitely seeing people are comfortable dining outside versus inside. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing I was talking to a restaurant earlier this week, though, they're, they're really happy to see that, that the enthusiasm for takeout has continued. Um, you know, places that maybe you didn't traditionally get takeout from, people are still getting takeout. So I think they're really appreciative that people are coming in and they're doing takeout. So but, that was but nice you know. To hear. Honestly, what I will say to that takeout component, I mean, you know, if you live in the city, takeout is a part of your life, right? Yep. And I Uber yep. Eats was just really ramping up, not to use a third party thing, but you know, was really yep. ramping up probably two to three years before the pandemic, maybe a little more. But in the suburbs, like in Bethesda, in you know, Kensington, in the in the suburbs, you didn't have as much access mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. food. Right. So now right. that more and more people do take away it does allow for more people to have access to your food that maybe you didn't have before. I mean, it's, it's the tiniest of silver linings, but it is a silver lining. Yeah, I think it's a silver lining. I think, um, again, this idea that outdoor eating is super popular and these additional seating areas are really helping, um, you know, they're just really happy with that and, you know, continue to look to be able to ramp up staffing. I mean, that's just, that's still happening. And staffing issues aside, there are so many new restaurants opening up in Bethesda. Yeah, it's really exciting to see that, you know, even with, um, you know, in the middle of how things are going with the pandemic and and things were challenging for a while, we do have quite a few new folks um, coming in, you know, before the end of this year. um, And we're excited to see, you know, who they are and that you know, um, there's some vegan restaurants coming in. Um, it's exciting. So who's coming in? You got Chaya Tacos? Chaya Tacos is coming in. I think they're opening quite soon. Um, they were planning by the, by early October. So, um, excited about that A restaurant called Planta, which is also, you know, vegan focused. Um, we've got a couple of new pizzerias coming, some more Mexican, um, and taco places coming. So, you know, they're filling up those vacancies. So we hope that it's creating opportunities, um, you know, when there's a vacancy available. Well, I have to give a shout out to my friend, Mikey Friedman, who's opening up um, Aventino, which I am oh, yes. so yep. excited about. And the second 
part of that is, is that my son, Sam will be working there as well. Oh, wonderful. Close to home. (laughs) (laughs) home. That's nice. Yeah. uh, Very exciting. Um, Okay. So before we wrap up the taste of Bethesda Mm -hmm. is not happening this year. It isn't. um, And a lot of factors went into that decision for us. Um, We were super excited to bring it back. We started working on it in June and it just became more and more complicated with um, restaurants not being able to fully commit. Um, again, back to the idea of staffing and staffing. supply issues. Mm-hmm. We had we had a real problem getting enough volunteers. Quite frankly, you know, it takes Taste of Bethesda's forty five thousand people in just five hours in downtown mm-hmm. Bethesda. We need all hands on deck. We need. Um, local banks to come out and sell tickets. We need people to help sell drinks. And we just were finding that people, as much as they want to be out, and that's great, it, it, it just was not working and fitting for this for this year. And with the well, increase in numbers, it just felt like we want to put our resources into promoting restaurants, live music, smaller activations, things that people are comfortable with. And, and it, you know, we can continue to do that as, you know, through the fall, instead of just one big day, we can do lots of smaller things. Well, and last year you guys did a, so many different things as a way to, you know, keep people engaged with yes. and we'll continue uh, the to Bethesda do that. offerings, right? Yeah. And it, it just seems like a better fit for right now. And, you know, our plan is to bring it back. Um, we're just not there quite yet. Great. Well, Stephanie, tell everybody where they can, you know, sort of keep uh, updated on what's happening in Bethesda. You guys sent out a great newsletter. We do. Uh, you can sign up for our newsletter. Our website is Bethesda.org. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Um, we try to be active on all those social media platforms every day. And uh, we do have a great newsletter. We'll keep you updated every week because there are constantly changes and we're no longer planning things six and 12 months ahead. We are planning <laughs> things for eight and 12 weeks ahead. So uh, please, please follow us and see what's exciting and happening in Bethesda. Excellent. All right, Stephanie, thanks so much for joining Thank me. You. This is Nikki Nellis on Industry Night. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about Snallygaster. It's Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC. Now back to Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. And we're back on Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, here on Real Fun DC. Don't forget, you can follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on all the platforms, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Not so much on Facebook, because I really don't like it, but Instagram and Twitter for sure. Okay, so as I said at the beginning of the show, festivals are relaunching, even though Taste of Bethesda did not find a way to do it. There are others who are making their way to make it happen. Now, Snally Gaster hits the streets on October 9th. Now, this is not your typical festival. This is a beer festival. And Greg Enger of Neighborhood Restaurant Group is going to join us. Greg, thanks so much for popping in. Thanks, Nikki. Great to be here as always. It's good to see you. So, Greg, um, everybody knows you as this major beer guru. You've, like, I don't know, started when you were an infant, instead of being on a pacifier, you sucked on a beer bottle, like catch us up just a little bit on your evolution in beer. Uh, well, yeah, we'll skip forward a few years from the okay. infancy. Um, yeah, no, you know, I, I got started at the Bricks Keller, which was, you know, this incredible beer spot in DC. Um, it was the first beer bar in America. I dropped out of grad school and needed some work. It all worked out really well. Traded in books for beers. Um, and this is in the early 2000s. I was lucky enough to meet Michael Babin, who was the founder and CEO of Neighborhood Restaurant Group um, in 2006, right after we opened Rustico Alexandria, which was our first beer property. Mm -hmm. And um, he convinced me to come aboard as the bar manager and beer director there. Uh, And at that point, I figured I'm just going to go for it with restaurants. I'd fallen in love with restaurants, with service, hospitality, wine, spirits, food, beer over the past, over the, the few years leading up to it. Uh, and it, it just, everything kind of took off from there. Church Key, Blue Jacket, Sovereign, Owens Ordinary, a second Rustico, Grand Delancey in New York. Uh, so many more things um, have happened over the past 15 years, and it's been an incredible ride. And, but Snally Gaster is something that's been around now. I mean, I've been with you. Let me back up. I've been with you through the ride. Do you know what yeah, I mean? I mean, we've known one. each other for yeah, so yeah, long. Yeah, exactly. um, so Snally Gaster, was that your brainchild? I mean, what was it about doing a festival? That's a total separate business model than yeah. the restaurant. So one thing is when I joined Rustico Alexandria, again, three months after it opened in 2006, the idea was like, we're going to throw a ton of parties. We're going to do a lot of events. Some are going to be indoors. Some are going to be outdoors. Some are going to be offsite. So in 2007, October, I think it was 25th, 2007, 
we threw our first Oktoberfest party in the parking lot behind Rustico Alexandria. Okay. We proceeded to do that for the next five, for five years until 2011, when the fire marshal told us we could no longer do it there because I think we had 4,000 people. Oh my in God, in that, that, that parking lot? lot? Yeah, and well, spilling out to the train tracks behind people's lawns. It was <laughs> a beautiful thing. Um, uh -huh. But obviously we knew then we had to relocate and we had already signed a lease on Blue Jacket, the Navy Yard. Wouldn't open until 2013, but it was like, okay, let's, let's, we heard about some room down there. And back then you could see from Blue Jacket all the way to the Anacostia River. Now, of right. course, it's all uh, obstructed by um, uh, condos and apartments and great restaurants. The three so, R's, Greg, the three uh, R's, retail, <laughs> restaurants, and residences. <laughs> Before that, there was one um, fledgling beer festival. And so when we moved into DC, Michael Fabin, aforementioned, um, came up with Sally Gaster as the name. Um, we had 100 beers the first year uh, and like 50 breweries. It was a big, huge thing in 2012. And then just, I don't know, every year we like to make things harder on ourselves. And so uh, then we went to Union Market. We came back to the yards for, I think, four years and then finally got DC to let us do it on Pennsylvania Avenue, where we were in 18, 19, and now again in 21. Okay, but can we just talk about what it means to do a festival on Pennsylvania Avenue? Because that's no easy feat. It's not like everybody and their brother can just have a festival on Pennsylvania Avenue. No, I think they only do like four all year or something. They're very right. um, stingy with uh, the licenses they give out. So we, you know, I think we proved ourselves over the years. We have an amazing event coordinator. Uh, her name is Steph Holland. She's been with us since the second iteration of Sally Gaster. She runs festivals all over the country. And so she's been hugely instrumental in helping with that. But yeah, I mean, 8,000 people uh, on a four city blocks with the Capitol building as the backdrop. This year, there'll be 450 beers, 20 plus food vendors, four bands on two stages. It's, uh, it takes a lot of uh, a lot of people, a huge team of really, really talented people. Well, I mean, the coordination is massive. So let's talk about uh, sort of how you curate 450 beers because I know this and I assume most people who have been to Snally Gas to know this, but you know, nothing against Budweiser, but there's no Budweiser at this festival. It's not, that's not the kind of, this is not that kind of festival. This is no. for a, a different palette. Well, it's a beer festival, and right. I think Budweiser and the like um, are more like, you know, alternatives. Is the yellow conveyors of mild intoxication, which has a place, <laughs> I think. Um, but um, for us, we're looking to support small independent uh, producers who uh, choose, you know, flavor profiles over profit and uh, do that throughout the, the world, really. So it's, it's amazing. I have uh, an incredible team, obviously, as we've grown as a group and as this festival has grown, we've grown our team. So Tim Liu is the beer director with NRG. He and I and Bruno Simois um, and Dylan Pitcher are the four that are really concentrating on this. And it is wild because, you know, in DC, we can direct ship beer um, to, you know, the restaurant and serve it right away. So we lean into that, but it requires, I mean, dozens and dozens of direct shipments from all over uh, the country, and then uh, imports as well. It's, 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 it's wild. Uh, it really is. I am, I am, the more I'm kind of overseeing the whole thing, and right. I'm involved in this little details sometimes, I'm blown away on how it actually happens. But um, is there, are there, so now do beer companies reach out to you, instead of you reaching yeah. out to them? Like, I assume people are like, dude, get oh, me yeah. in, I want to be a part of this. How does this work? That's exactly, it, that happens a lot, and that, it, it could be, a eureka moment when they're breweries that we never thought would even like entertain it that's like amazing and sometimes they're kind of younger brewers which you know just open maybe aren't quite ready for snally gaster and so you know we have to like kind of let them down gently but always encourage them to keep trying keep asking you know we'll try to find room for them in the future um but a lot of it's just existing relationships that we have and um, I'll say too, you know, obviously we're, you're going to talk to Adrian in a minute. He's one of my good buddies. Um, a lot of our brewer friends spread the word. And so uh, he can tell you about this, but you know, we'll, we'll suddenly, there'll be some breweries, he can tell you the story that we've reached out to been like, Hey, can you do Snally? And they'd be like, sorry, sorry, sorry. And the next thing you know, they're like, yes, because one of our other brewer friends has convinced them to do it. So it's kind of a heartwarming craft culture um, that goes into an organic craft culture that goes into to setting this up. 
Well, you know, that's a, a, I mean, listen, we'll get into all the details at the end of the show and you can tell people more about some of the, like the cult classics that are going to be there. But I think that's a great segue to head over to Adrian. Adrian, you want to put on your mic for a sec? Hi. I, I did that right. Yeah, Hello. you did. How are you? Sweet. I'm good. good. Thanks so Thanks much for, for having me. No, yeah, I really all right. appreciate it. So, I mean, I think Greg really set this up, but I, I have too many questions before we can sort of take his segue about why you would participate in Snallygaster other than being yeah. a friend of Greg and Gert. Yeah, um, but so can we talk about a little bit about your your company and how you got started? Yeah, sure. Um, we are, let's see, six and a half years old since we've opened. Um, okay. Took a long time to build out, but um, I was just a former beer geek, home brewer. I was a network engineer. And uh, I mean, the long dragged out story is my wife kind of pushed me into trying to make beer um, until I got good at it. But really it is, I just wanted to be, this, this community is awesome. This, this whole industry is incredible. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to have a place that was fun for everybody to come to and um, just enjoy themselves, listen to music, hang out with friends, make good beer. I mean, and then pay my bills. <laughs> yeah, that, that's literally the bottom line. Of I think that's paying right. the bills is a, is, yeah. is a part of the business model that is yeah. sort of necessary, right? Yeah, yeah it's, it's a necessary evil for sure. It is a necessary evil. Well, yeah. So let's talk about, so it's Ocelot Brewing. You're Correct. in Loudoun County, so you're close. Was, yes. um, what was it about the beer that you wanted to be making that you are now able to make? Like what, what was it that you were trying to do? I know you started as a home brewer, but I assume- sure having talked to home brewers in the past and, and knowing Greg and talking to other beer makers, like I assume there's something you thought you could add to beer that, that you felt you could express. Yes, that's absolutely correct. My brother lives in San Diego and he got me into craft beer out there. Every time I traveled, there was massive amount of breweries. There was all kinds of IPAs. There was all different styles. There were stouts, there were sours, there was everything. And I'd fly back here and our, at the time, I mean, this was like 2011, I guess, 2010, 2011, there really wasn't that much of a option unless you went into DC, you know, unless you went to one of Greg's places or something like that. Um, <clears throat> but around here, the grocery stores, there was no bar for us. You know, Virginia didn't have the law that allowed pints to be sold yet. So once that happened, that's when you saw a big boom in the state as far as selling pints at the bar because your profits are now higher. So you don't have to do so wait 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 so when you ordered in a bar mm -hmm. you could only what could you get i don't you understand at a brewery you could not order a pint of beer so you could go to the brewery but you couldn't drink at the brewery right you could do like a tour and there was little things where you can like have little samples you could take beer to go um so that that talk was talk about anti-business i mean yeah. seriously that is unbelievable. It's, it's mostly antiquated laws that were never challenged. Um, sure. You know, sometimes it doesn't help when there's, you know, uh, people who own amusement parks that, that also own big, large beer companies and can write the rules. Um, mm -hmm. So they get challenged. Okay, we'll do a little out. side eye. We can do a yeah. little side eye with that. I get where I see where you're going. I mean, Greg and I can to totally go down a rabbit hole. There was some antiquated law. When Greg was at Ristico, they wanted to do beer pops, and then the yeah. government like went nuts about it because you couldn't put alcohol in a popsicle. It was the whole thing was so, it was just seemed so old. It was like, come on, where where are we? That this right. is that this is the concern. It is, and we and honestly, we still have some laws that need to be that need to be changed. Like for instance, we're doing our, we're calling it our five year, our six year, our six and a half year Oktoberfest flea market extravaganza on October second, so the week before Stanley. Mm -hmm. So I have to get an ABC license for that, just to expand my ABC property for people to drink outside. Right. And I can't sell cans to go that day. Huh. It's because of a law that was done for wineries to help, you know, give tastes at different stops have now rolled into. But when you go to a winery, you can buy a bottle and drink it there. Yes, but they have their property entire their entire property is ABC. Oh, license. I see what you're saying. I'm going outside my licensed space, but uh, adjacent. So weird things, but we get around it. It sounds like it. Um, mm -hmm. so well, I mean, listen, you're nothing if not a bootstrapper, right? You started your own brewery. Mm -hmm. Um, so now that you're sort of got your business up and running, 
what was the effects of COVID for a small brewery? I mean, did you have a support system in place? We have the most amazing regulars and uh, local customers that, um, for, you know, for a few months, we just sat on the sidewalk out front and sold beer to go from a tent. And, you know, we tried to listen to music out there with the speaker and like sing and dance and show everybody we're still having a good time. Mm -hmm. But we really had, we didn't lay anybody off. Um, and we had, we had the best customers, regulars. They would come in and, and support us hugely and, and, and tip very well which I, I think the restaurant industry did see uh, to some extent as well, uh, which was really heartwarming. Um, overall, you know, we were down a little bit. Um, package went up, draft went down. So like, you know, margins change and whatnot, but you know, we got through it. So everyone was scrambling. I mean, every business was scrambling. So. Right. Yeah. No, I, um, I was scrambling too. I totally appreciate that. Now, so now that we're here and Snally is back, how long have you been a participant in Snally? Uh, since Greg first asked me to be there, I came with, with, uh, I came running. Um, I don't know how many years it's been four, five years, maybe Greg. No, I had to uh, be, I mean, you opened 2015. Yeah. So that was your first 15. Yeah. 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 Right, right, right and so the, was yeah. that, uh, what was that experience like for you? Because um, I think everybody thinks of these festivals as like, what's my experience as the attendee, but not like a brewer's experience of like introducing their beers to the general yeah. public. Well, it's especially for Snally, it's a little it's a little different, but um, mostly I, I love these events because I get to network with with other people. And again, like I said before, this community is is amazing. We're all friends. Like we're, it's very rare that there's someone that doesn't, you know, get along and give big hugs to and, yeah. you know, go out to dinner with or do collaborations or whatever. We're all we're all big big huge family behind the scenes. Um, we have a lot of fun, but so it's always great to see that. I got people now all over the all over the country, all over the world. Even sometimes now we all get to hang out at least once a year to, you know, cheers and we're actually working, you know, per se. Um, I've seen how hard you guys work at Snally Gasser. Trust me, I understand how it works. <laughs> the next day it hurts though. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when I first started doing, I was completely overwhelmed. And, um, you know, to be honest, I'm like, what am I doing here? I don't, you know, deserve to be pouring next to these guys. Um, and Greg was kind enough to constantly give me compliments saying, oh yeah, you do belong here, you know. Um, I think my wife paid him to say that though. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. I know Greg well enough. I mean, listen, he already told us there are people he has to gently let down. Yeah, so yeah. if he I wants just, you there. If I can't say something nice, I just don't say anything at all. <laughs> uh, but I, I think, you know, what, what Greg's also not going to say on his own, because he's the kind of guy, his, his, his reach in this industry is, is gigantic. And I'm sure Perfect. you know that too. And he has connections everywhere. I mean, I could tell you stories about being treated like a VIP just because I knew him, you know. Mm. Um, but he's able to curate just the probably the best beer event in the country, like by far. That's what I go to at least. And it helps that it's in DC too, because that gets around a lot of distribution laws. It gets around uh, things that DC does allow to happen. So, um, but even still, his connections get beers that most other breweries that want to do a festival can't even imagine getting or able mm. to. And he still well, so, carried some of these small places. Like, I think a few years ago, he went and got this lager from somewhere in the middle of Bavaria that he, like, found on some rainy night or some shit. And it was, sorry. Um, okay. It was amazing, you know. Um, so oh, anyway. I'm going to stop you there, Adrian, because I want to sort of dive down deep with that. And you and Greg and I can sort of discuss this. And Rachel, if you want to pipe in, too, on it. But let's get to Rachel first, and then we'll sort of talk about those sort of cult favorites that, you know, the, the beer geeks, you know, really crave. That's why they come to the festival for these like hard to find or not always available beers. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC. <sighs> Serving up thought for food. Now back to Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. As I told you off air, I love pizza. I mean, I really love pizza. It's my favorite food. I would eat it absolutely every day. Um, I grew up in New Jersey, so I grew up on New York style pizza, like by the slice, but I am a convert to Neapolitan. I do love Neapolitan, but I also love Philly pizza. I love like the tomato pie. Um, I'm not a huge Detroit fan, but I'll eat it. 
Um, so I'd love to know your story about how you got into pizza. I mean, I, I feel, I always tell people that like I found, I didn't seek out the pizza life. The pizza life found me. I went, was going to school, um, studying geography and I, uh, started working at a slice shop in Iowa and did it for many years. I see like lesson learned here. Who knew they had slice shops in Iowa? We have slice shops in Iowa, not the same, definitely not the same mm -hmm. uh, style, not New York style. But um, when I moved to New York with pizza experience, I got right in at Roberta's, which was like, oh my God, kind of crazy. And I was there for many years, ended up being um, reigned the pizza Regina, which was basically, I was in charge of pizza operations there. Um, and after that, I worked at Fortina, took a little hiatus, um, making ice cream at, at Morgan Stearns. And then mm. I met Michael Babin, who, uh, offered me the position of the executive chef of Slice Joint. And we opened in New York in 2019. And so can we talk about the kind of pizza you're doing at Slice Joint? Um, because I, you know, there's just so much talk these days about pizza and it's, it's no longer simple. There's pizza, there's pizza, there's Detroit style, there's Connecticut, New Haven style, New York style, Neapolitan. So how did you decide how you wanted to craft your pizza? Well, I think there's a lot of talk about like, what is New York style? Like what, what makes it New York style? But if you look in New York, there's actually quite a bit of variation there. Like you have you know, the classic, like Jafara, they've, he's been making it the same for, I don't know, 60 years. Mm -hmm. And then you've got newer places that are like, um, you know, up, upside and places like that. Um, and they're like doing more like, you know, fermented doughs and things like that, naturally fermented. Um, and then you got dollar slices. So like all of those are New York slices. Right. What I wanted to do is take my experience with pizza and the things that I learned and loved and put that into a New York style pizza, which to me is just a big pizza with a crisp bottom that you can fold and walk down the street and eat. That's right. That's think, what it needs to be. Yeah, <laughs> I'm totally with you. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but when you were doing it, so how did you decide on the crust and the ovens and the sauce and the like, and the cheese, like, how did you decide what that would look like? because that's where people get, you know, kind of nasty about what it's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Um, I, well, with the crust, I, uh, I actually consulted with my friend, Nina, who is an amazing baker. She's, she opened the Roberta's bakery program. And I was like, you know, I've never done this before. Like what's going to work. And we found, you know, we're using a high hydration dough. Um, mm. and it's, you know, we're baking at 600, get a nice crisp bottom. Um, the ovens are typically all New York style pizzas are made in a deck oven. Right. So it, we actually have different, um, in New York, we have a gas oven and in, in DC, we have electric, mm -hmm. but same result. Um, and then for the sauce, I am a huge fan of the Alta Cucina tomatoes. I think they're the best in the market. And for the okay. price, amazing. Those are the base of my sauce. Um, it's just a preferred brand, you know? And then uh, for the cheeses, I I picked Grande because it's my favorite pizza cheese and it holds up in that kind of heat the best. Right. Uh, and for me, the most important part is ratio. You know, you, you, you can't have too much cheese. You can't have not enough salt. You know, you everything needs to be seasoned and at the right ratio. Otherwise, it's kind of a flat pizza. Right. Hey, no. Can I, is it okay if I get a notebook? Can you repeat that please, Rachel? I need to know how to make pizza. <laughs> <laughs> now he's going to be making your pizza at Ocelot. That's what's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Good luck, Adrian. Good luck. We'll, we'll communicate the recipe offline. <laughs> so, so Rachel, so now that you're doing this at, you have it at the roost. We do, yeah. Here in DC. Is it only by the slice or can we also get a pie? You can get whole pies and by the slice. Okay, great. And so now that you're at the roost and you're going to be a part of Snallygaster, what is it? You have not done Snallygaster, have you? I, what, 
I actually attended Snallygaster um, like a week after I was hired. Uh, I'd come down here when it was happening and they were like, you want to go? And I, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. And now I'm a little afraid to do it, but. I well, I was going to ask. So, I mean, as a food vendor, what does that look like for you? How do you, how do you, how do you scale up for that? How do you prepare to do that? Well, we're actually, we're finding a mobile deck oven is an impossible task. So right. we are actually not doing New York style pizza. Okay. I'm doing this uh, concept I've been working on, um, pony pies, um, and they're just like personal pan pizzas. Hmm. So uh, we're going to be making those and just simple. Wait, why are they called pony pies? Like a pony keg, but oh, a pie, pony pie. <laughs> got it. Got it. Sorry. A little slow on the uptake. Got it. And so what makes it easier to do that? there at the at the festival just the limitations of the oven more so than anything okay. uh, a deck oven is required for uh new york style pizza mm -hmm. you can't really get around it but you're going to be able to make these there and serve them warm and they'll be fine yeah because of the pan right so the pan is going to allow us to cook it you know in a regular convection oven with stones Oh, got it. And you're able to set that all up in a festival. I just don't feel like people understand what it takes for a food vendor to set up <laughs> at a festival. It's you so funny. I mean? We luckily have a person, um, Bethany, who's helping us acquire the equipment and taking a lot of the, like the harder work off. For, so for me, it's just about production and service. Right. So I, I'm blessed in that way. <laughs> I don't have to deal with the I just think of the electricity it takes. The electricity? Like do all that. So Greg, let me bring you back in for a sec. So how many food vendors are there? Well, it's, you know, we're kind of all talking about this issue of the pandemic that's very much still happening. Um, and, you know, we had a, a, a larger list of vendors that has shortened, unfortunately, over the past two or three weeks, just from, based on staffing. Some yeah. vendors have had to pull out. They're just like, we can't get there. Um, but right now we have about a dozen vendors Mm -hmm. um, but we are um, actively adding more and um, hope to get up to close to 18 to 20. One of the things we're doing this year, which I'm excited about, is um, to your point about how hard it can be just to like execute all this, is we're for NRG in the past, with the exception of, of Pony Pies from Rachel, um, we're folding all NRG vendors into like kind of two big kind of carnival concessions. Mm. So you walk up and it's like burgers and half smokes and cotton candy and pretzels and so because we're also short-staffed getting all of our chefs to kind of contribute there to execute the, execute that and it's you know primarily red apron hi-fi taco um buzz and state fair ice cream so we'll have this kind of like really cool take on classic um you know carnival or concert food well, the soft pretzels are key, I do have to say. Uh, that, and yeah, there's indeed. always people walking around with pretzel necklaces. Is yeah, that like a beer festival thing? What is it, that? It is. I've never done it. Um, only, I mean, it doesn't seem sanitary no. like, throughout the day. <laughs> Especially all of us have like these beards, these like kind of black things. Yeah, I mean, one thing if we were clean shaven, um, maybe. But uh, yeah, no, the, uh, we do these amazing everything um, bagel spice pretzels at mm -hmm. Blue Jacket. And we'll have those at the festival. So it's kind of fun. Like David Testa, who's our um, culinary director, he and I and, and Nathan Anda for Red Apron, Rachel, so many of our chefs have gotten together and been like, what can we kind of pull from each of our, our vendors internally to right. make sure that we have this cool kind of pan NRG, really accessible, but absolutely delicious and affordable uh, food options at Sally Castro. Well, I mean, cause you know, if you are drinking that much beer, um, it is important to eat. Mm -hmm. And, but so let's just talk, go back to the beer for a moment. How do people, well, let's talk about who, the beers that you're bringing. Like, mm -hmm. can we talk specifics? Like, cause I know every year, like people talk about like, oh my God, so-and-so is going to be there. And I've got to check that out other than Ocelot, obviously, what are, um, some of the other ones that you're, you know, sort of your secret ones that you're yeah. bringing in that you're looking forward to? 
Well, I mean, it's 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 really cool that you said that because like Ocelot is one of our um, just stalwart local breweries. So if they come every year, they bring amazing beer. People get excited about that, obviously. Um, so we, we're always trying for balance and all of our beer lists at our restaurants and bars, at Sally Gaster. So balance of alcohol by volume, not everything can be 12%. Um, not everything should be sour. We have a ton of classic beers, a ton of sours, a ton of stouts, a ton of IPAs, um, local, domestic, and international. So uh, among the, the most exciting kind of new additions this year, uh, we were able to finally get Trillium Brewing Company from uh, Massachusetts. They have a great location in Canton, Mass, outside of Boston, and one downtown in Boston, uh, the Send Beer, which is um, really, really exciting. Adrian was huge in getting us a really cult brewery from uh, Southern Florida uh, called Angry Chair that makes incredible stouts. So they'll be there. A couple of incredible upstate New York breweries, um, Mortalis from the Rochester area and Fidens from uh, Colony, New York, which is actually near where I'm from, are coming uh, to town uh, for the first time. And then there's these incredible small batch producers of mixed fermentation beers. They're like so complex, so drinkable, so delicate. Uh, we have Floodlands from Seattle and Washington. This is a brewery that you can only get their beer if you are part of their club. Like they don't distribute, they don't sell cans to go. It's bottles of beer for club members. They're sending beer, which is incredible. And also um, uh, keeping together, our friend Avery Swanson, who worked at Jester King uh, outside of Austin, Texas for many years. She's based out of Chicago now and she makes remarkable um really uh beautiful beers and she's gonna be coming to you that's just a short list but there's many that's many a long ones. list <laughs> i'm so i mean i i'm so fascinated by all of it because you know the we've discussed this every year about the growth of craft beer and and, and what it's been like i mean not just in the dc metro area and Loudoun, and etc but yeah, just nationally the way that that beer has totally and 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 creation of beer has totally changed uh, and how people access it, you know, yeah. and, and what's available. I mean, if you go to any market now that sells beer, you know, there's not just 10 or 12 varieties. There's usually 30 to 50 varieties yeah. of beer. Too much, to be honest huh? with you, possibly too many. Uh, it's, it's exploded to a point where, I mean, there's 9,000 breweries in the US today. Wow. Uh, the previous high water mark was like the, uh, 1880, early 1880s when they were 4,000. And when uh, I was like, to use this, in 1979, when I was born, there were 80 breweries. So you go 4,080 to 9,000 and many uh, outstanding ones. So I think the need for curation and selection is still there because it can be so overwhelming. And the other thing I wanted to say is that we are very careful now to not just do all local or all American or all IPA. We love import beers. You know, we're bringing like, these small batch beers at great expense and tons of delays from Europe uh, and beyond to get here now because we want to like try to tell the full story of beer and not just make it about like what's cool, what's new, what's hot. You know, we kind of like well, to show and showcase unsexy styles. And but I to, love that. You know, yeah. I think, yeah. I, you know, listen, I'm all for local, obviously. And I, I mean, that's the basis of what I do. I support local, but to pretend like it's not happening elsewhere or to not see it as a national or international trend, or at least, you know, you know, tip your hat to what's happening in other areas oh. just keeps you closed-minded. Exactly. And it's so much more fun this way. And I think we have a better chance of opening people's eyes to new things when we can introduce these classics. I mean, just a little quick thing, Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, everybody knows who they are. I think, you know, they opened in 1980. Sierra Nevada Pale Ale was the most ubiquitous beer in America for 30 years. The other day, I met some people who brought to like a pool party, a new hazy IPA from Sierra Nevada, and we're loving it. And I was excited to see that. And when I mentioned Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, they looked at me like, what? They never had that beer. So, I mean, there's a lot of lessons here. One is that Sierra Nevada is very good at playing to the new audience as well as the old. Right. But it just shows that like there's so many things now to kind of like go back in time and, and, and remind people or introduce people who were, you know, not even born when Sierra Nevada was... Uh, just coming up about all these crazy styles of beer that they've never heard of. Well, yes, I think it's like the coffee story, you know, the first wave, third wave, you know, what wave are we in now? I think you could 
probably come up with a, a metaphor with that exactly. and with beer and how, mm -hmm. you know, historically it's changed and how people drink it in this yeah. country specifically. Yeah, exactly. Okay. On that point, note, um, cause you and I could really have at it for a long time. <laughs> um, please tell, um, before we give everybody the last details of Snallygasser, Adrian, I would love for you to tell everybody where they can find you in Ocelot. Give us your Instagram handle, please and uh, any pertinent details. And then Rachel, I'm gonna have you do the same thing. Thank you. Uh, we are right behind Dallas Airport, um, right off 606 in Loudoun County, um, 23600 Overland Drive in Dallas, Virginia. Um, we have a tasting room, it's open seven days a week. All we do is listen to music and hang out with friends and drink beer. Um, Instagram guess, handle? Instagram is Ocelot Brewing. Excellent. Yep. Okay, and Rachel, tell us where we can find you at the Slice Joint. We have two locations um, in New York. We are in the Market Line, which is at 115 Delancey Street. Mm -hmm. And then in uh, DC, we are on 1401 Pennsylvania Southeast. Um, we're open 11 a.m. till 10 p.m. and close on nine at nine on Sundays. And are you guys um, on Instagram? We are. It's at How You Slice It. Love it. Okay, great. All right, Craig, let's give everybody just the last 411 for Snally, how they get tickets, what it's going to be like, and uh, any important handles. Absolutely. So uh, snallygasterdc.com is where you can get tickets. Um, all of our VIP tickets are sold out, but we have plenty of general admission left, and that's from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. on October 9th, which is a Saturday. It is on Pennsylvania Avenue um, between 7th and third. Um, so the museum residences and the Australian embassy, the Capitol building in the background, uh, 450 of the best beers from around the world, ciders, great wines, sustainable wines, uh, cocktails, incredible food vendors like um, uh, Slice Joint slash Pony Pies, and um, four different bands. I want to mention this is really big because it's so cool. Uh, Trouble Funk is our headliner. They're the most classic DC go-go band. They just played 930 Club. Um, they did a tiny uh, desk concert recently. They're incredible. Pie Tasters, classic DC soul and ska. We'll have the Aztecs, which do funk, and we'll have Dionysus, which does rock and blues. Uh, DJs all day. It is a happening, and um, it's something everybody should should really grow. Through. But the biggest thing is that it all goes to benefit Arcadia Center right. for Sustainable Food and Agriculture, our nonprofit that we started in 2011 that does absolutely amazing things for the local food system. Excellent. All right, guys, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Well, that was a really good show. If you haven't been to Snally Gaster in the past, you are really missing an incredible event. And as Greg said at the very end, it's not just beer. There is also food. There is also cocktails. There is also wine. There's tons of entertainment. Um, it is a great way to spend the day. And again, as we are creeping out of this pandemic, what an incredible way to do it because it's entirely outside so you can be very, very safe. Um, I wanna thank also um, Stephanie Coppola from Bethesda for joining us. If you haven't been to Bethesda in a while, there's certainly so much going on there. So you should certainly see what's happening. And again, I wanna thank you all for joining me here on Industry Night on Real Fun DC. I'm Nikki Nellis at NYCCI, N-E-L-L-I-S. Please get your vaccine, mask up, hand sanitize, socially distance, do what you got to do so that we can move on, be safe out there, and have a delicious week. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC.